Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Excited to have you here for episode 89. And before we jump into the interview today, I did just want to make one mention. Something I'm doing a lot more this year is I want to engage with the audience, the listeners. You guys have been not only listening to this episode, but probably a lot of others as well. And I want to give back a little bit, as much as I can, I guess. Uh, if you go to my website, brianandraco.com forward slash contact, you'll see a drop down for a 15 minute call. I want to talk with as many listeners as possible, learn about your journey, the things that are going on in your world, answer any questions and be a resource if I can. And I'll certainly, I'll be lobbing questions back over to you because again, I want to learn a lot about what's going on in your world. So hope to connect with a lot of the community. Again, go to the website, brianandraco.com forward slash contact, fill out a form and we'll schedule something from there. Okay, so let's jump into the episode now with Dr. Oren Davis. Uh, Let me do a little table setting before we jump in. He earned the first doctorate in positive psychology and is a self-actualization engineer who enables people to do and be their best. He consults for companies from startups to multinationals on hiring strategies, culture, innovation, and employee well-being. And as the principal investigator of the Quality of Life Laboratory, He conducts research on flow, creativity, hypnosis, and mentoring. So just a little background on Dr. Davis. Really intriguing interview today. We dive deep in a variety of topics, um, especially when it comes to, you know, kind of corporations, companies hiring, those type of things. Um, I think you guys will really enjoy this unique perspective from Dr. Davis on a variety of topics. So let's jump right into it. Without further ado, my chat today with Dr. Oren Davis. Let's get it started. Orin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Thanks, Brian. I'm excited to chat with you on a, a number of fronts here. I think you can uh, definitely share a lot of your research and uh, kind of life's work, if you will, uh, with the listeners. I think it could really help them um, on some stuff. I, I want to tie into your journey a little bit here, but I thought it might be good to maybe do a kind of a broad umbrella for folks because I know when I you and I first met. I didn't know what the heck self-actualization was, and um, I, I know I had some questions on that. So can we start out maybe there, and then we'll peel back the layers. What is self-actualization, and, and why is it important? Why should people care about it? So there are a lot of different definitions of self-actualization. People look at it in a number of different ways. Uh, I would say that self-actualization is about fulfilling your potential, and I think the best part about that is that as soon as you fulfill your potential, you'll find that you've got a heck of a lot more. So it's about this process of engaging in an upward spiral of growth and development where you simultaneously are fulfilling your potential and creating new potential to fulfill. So how does that work for folks? Because, you know, as, as kids, right, we're always like, you know, he has a lot of potential. He can do things or she can do things. Like, is there a quantifiable number like or something to say, hey, he's got to this point or she's got to that point and, and now can go on? How, how do you guys do that from a research standpoint, I guess? So first of all, I've never, I've never really seen a number or quantifiable thing. And uh, Maslow, who really brought out the idea of self-actualization, pointed out that the, really, that, that the idea of self-actualization is if it's some kind of finish line, it's sort of a misnomer. It's that you get to a point in your life where you're constantly self-actualizing and that that is, that is the, the point at which you've hit that upward spiral. Um, a couple of people have invented measures for them. I haven't seen one that 
I think really captures the phenomenon. Although uh, my colleague Scott Barry Kaufman is definitely putting out some new stuff, and uh, he is he has brought forth some new measures. Um, haven't we? They haven't been fully developed and tested, but um, they, he's got some exciting prospects coming down the pike. Uh, but other than that, there have not been too many ways of measuring it. Even those measurements are really just a snapshot of where somebody is at the moment. And we can see, you know, in this moment, it looks like somebody's in the upward spiral. Um, they could move out of it. They can move back in. Self-actualization is a messy process. And it, you know, it's the sort of thing where we want some nice, clear boundaries to say, yep, this person's in that zone and this person's not in that zone. And life doesn't work that way. And neither does psychology. <laughs> Yeah. So is it something where, yeah, because it's really, and self-accusation, I've been big on self-awareness recently. You know, are those like cousins? What, what, how does that work in tandem? Self-awareness, self-accusation? So I don't think I've ever seen any research about this you know, directly or specifically, but I would point out that it's pretty hard to fulfill your potential if you don't really know yourself, if you don't know who you are, you don't know, you know who you're about, you know, what, what your passions are. Uh, how to be the person that you want to be or who is the person you want to be. You, you kind of need to know those things if you're going to pursue this sort of self-actualization. Yeah, this stuff is really fascinating. I want to I dive into this a little deeper. How did you get into this work? I know we chat a little bit about kind of your upbringing a little bit, but can you share that? Like, why was this important for you to be like, you know, I'm going to dedicate my life to this? So there are a couple of things. Uh, part of that is, um, like Maslow, uh, I'm an Orthodox Jew. Um, I grew up, I grew up Jewish, and I'm still Jewish. Uh, but um, part of that, part of that tradition is about doing your best, being your best. You know, Jewish people believe that you know God has given us a body, a mind, a spirit, a soul that you know we're meant to maximize on this earth in the best way that we can. And a lot of the teachings, a lot of the wisdom that is passed along through the generations and, you know, in the holy books really does talk about making the most of yourself, making the most of the opportunities, doing what you can, constantly growing. And these sorts of things is something that Maslow codified in a much more secular way. And that was something that was kind of drilled into me by my family and my community and, you know, also my religion. And being the scientist type, I, I realized that as much as there was a lot of wisdom, I didn't see necessarily a more scientific and systematic way of understanding this or really how to go about this. And I thought it would be, that, that was something I constantly had questions about was how do people do their best, be their best? You know, you hear about this potential thing, you know, just saying everybody talks about, so how do we actually get there? And I really wanted to do the science and to see, you know, what, what really makes that happen? And is there, you know, so to speak, is there an algorithm that we could follow? Or is there even, let's say, a meta algorithm? Is there a way for us to know how to come up with our own algorithm for that? And uh, I've been looking ever since. Well, because didn't you start off, though, like, like testing aspirin or something like that? And then you transitioned? <laughs> Can you tell me a little about that a little more? Sure. Uh, I actually, yes. Um, when people look at my CV, they figure out that the first research position I ever held was at Bristol Myers. Uh, I was doing um, high pressure liquid chromatography, working on Excedrin. The reason why was I was always very interested in chemistry. Uh, I, it's a subject I really enjoy. And I kind of thought about this going really from micro to macro. And it's amazing what you can learn about, uh, about people by studying molecules. 
And I got some really fun inspirations from things like statistical mechanics, uh, Boltzmann distribution. And I remember one of the days when I was a doctoral student studying organizational behavior, and it just crossed my mind that, you know, you could have, that you could explain like the energy and motivation of people inside of an organization using the Boltzmann distribution, which is uh, also how you explain the uh, motion and energy of electrons in a group. And just things like that, I just found lots of analogies that I could draw, but also like just studying people at the most micro levels, like the chemical and uh, electrochemical interactions that are going on in people's brains, which is uh, when I started moving from chemistry to neuroscience uh, as an undergraduate, um, but doing also computer modeling, um, and then you're going a little bit more macro, looking at um, cognitive psychology, moving even more macro to social and organizational psychology, and then you know being able to study positive psychology in graduate school also. Things sort of started to dovetail, and I found myself moving, you know, more in the macro level. But what's funny is the rules you learn about large groups of micro stuff, you find yourself translating to macro stuff. And um, as, as scientists go, I'm actually not one of the, I'm not the first to do that. Um, my undergraduate advisor studied physics as an undergrad and then, you know, is now a neuroscientist and uh, cognitive psychologist. And um, Teresa Mabile, who is a creativity researcher, a lot of whose work, um, some of my work builds on, uh, is also an ex-chemist. So a bunch of, bunch of uh, former chemists and physicists in psychology now. Hmm. What are some of the comparisons that you, you mentioned from molecules to maybe humans? Like what have, what have you found? Is there an analogy or something you can draw? So I found lots of them, but uh, one of them is that, you know, when we step back, we see a lot of humans just moving around in their, in their different clouds. Now you might, you know, think of it, you know, like electrons, electron clouds, and, and where a human is, we would never be able to know exactly where a human is. Uh, but as soon as we do, as soon as we try to measure that, as soon as we try to know exactly where somebody is, we lose sight of the path that they're on or their context or their momentum. Sounds a little bit like Heisenberg uncertainty, not being able to know the position and momentum of uh, a fermion at the, you know, at the same time. So that's one. Uh, another is something I drew on in my, in my TED talk was about uh, reaction coordinates, the idea that catalysts can make it easier to actually get through a change. And that you know, when human beings change, we always go through these really unstable periods. We often don't think about that when we change. We just think about like, you know, there's a moment before where we were one way, and then there's a moment after when we're another way, but we actually study how chemical reactions happen. You find that as you zoom in, there are moments of a very, very high instability, moments when things could go in any direction, moments when, you know, you, you hit the critical temperature, let's say, for a phase change, and so, you know, bonds are loosening, and electrons are starting to move faster, and atoms are starting to move faster, and you know things the, the phase change is happening but it's still some of the some solid some liquid some liquid some gas and it, it really gives you a very neat perspective on how we change and it, it kind of reminds you that change takes a lot of work and it's very unstable and that we really do need support from outside entities to help us move through it yeah. And what's interesting. So you mentioned something there. I wanted to talk about your Ted talk a little bit. Maybe that's a good, we'll, we'll take a, you know, a, a sideways around the building here to, uh, to talk about that. <laughs> what, 
when you talk about, so this kind of wall, I guess, or, you know, kind of influx before someone makes a change, are there certain, um, God, I don't even know the best word, maybe patterns or things that you guys have found that someone can recognize like, Hey, maybe I'm near this point or I'm in it. You know, I, I talk a lot about kind of that fear, you know, of like kind of the unknown and, and eventually you have to step outside that comfort zone. We hear that a lot, but is, is there anything you found from a research standpoint that maybe we could uh, drill back into or that someone could take and say, all right, I'm close. What do I have to continue doing to go down this path of change? So behavioral change is something, despite what you hear from certain folks, we really don't understand behavioral change that well. There are just too many moving parts, too many major different things going on. So uh, as, as fair warning to people, when someone's trying to tell, uh, tell you a simple model of behavior change, run the other direction. But nonetheless, I think that one of the things that helps is recognizing our own motivations, knowing that this is what we want and it's something we really, really do want. And I'm not saying desire is enough to make a change, but desire is enough to let you know that you really want something different. And you actually have to be, you know, very sincere about that. And we find people that they want a change. This would be nice. But when it, but when it comes to, you know, actually wanting to do it, do you want to put in the effort? Do you want things to be different? Are you able to, you know, start to imagine the differences in the life that you want? That's when you know you're, you're sort of getting there, you're getting ready. Then you need a whole lot of supports to put in. Because going through these changes by yourself is often a very difficult thing. Now, people do it. It does happen. But often when we, when we think about somebody making a change by themselves, we often miss, and they, sometimes they miss, how much support goes into that. And this can be things like financial support, social support, emotional support, um, moral support. We, we actually need all of those things. And part of that is that helps keep us stable as we shift from one thing to another thing. And I would also point out that the other thing that happens is that when people, when people are in the transition phase, they're sometimes partly on one side, partly on the other side, and they don't, they don't realize that that's actually how it's going to go. That you're, gonna, that you're gonna be in this really unstable transition state where you keep shifting back and forth. You're sometimes like this, you're sometimes like that, and that doesn't mean you're failing. That actually means you're probably doing okay. And what happens is that as you, you start to get a larger percentage of the time being in the place where you want to be, not in the place where you don't want to be or where you used to be, and that eventually you, you just keep on pushing for it, you keep on getting the support, you keep on building on momentum, you keep attending to those small wins that you get you, and focus on the progress that we do know, focus on the progress. And as you, as you do that, you will eventually get to that new space. Well, and something you mentioned in your TED Talk as well, which is a good point, is around the success, you know, like, and it's actually an interesting perspective. I don't know how many folks think about it. Of we, we, we see all the people that have been quote unquote successful, but I like how you put it as like, we don't know the number that failed. And so is that the actual blueprint or is it something else entirely? Now, it's an interesting perspective. How, is that just something you came up with yourself? Is that you know, research you guys did? How, how, did you, how did you think about that from that perspective? 
So the concept's called survivorship bias. It's a, we, we pay attention, that's a formal term for it, that we pay attention to survivors and we don't pay attention to how many tried. So whenever, whenever you're looking at the entire concept of best practices, both in business and in behavior change and so many other things, is a bit of a misnomer because most of the time you actually don't know how many people did it that way and screwed it up. So is that like, would someone, if they're, if they're trying to get advice or insight, would you suggest a different route or a way that they should be listening to that information in a different way? Absolutely listen to it differently. And, and when people are selling you best practices, the first thing to look for is, do you know how, can you tell me how many people tried that and failed? Can you tell me what percentage of those people, you know, when you say this is the best practice, did you just study the winners? Or did you study a group of people and you found that, uh, you know, everybody who did this did succeed and everybody who didn't do this did not succeed. And until you can tell me that, you don't actually have a best practice. And obviously, you really want to dig into that a lot more and run more experiments, et cetera, et cetera. But a bare minimum, you should be able to see that. So instead, the other thing to realize is that, you know, when, when you encounter these bits of advice, these best practices and so on, they're written for a general group. Well, you're, you're, not, you're not an average person. You're, you're your own person. And, you know, what's funny is like the averages that we talk about, they, they really don't exist. And people miss that, that when, when we do research, when we talk about studies, we talk about people, we're, we're showing averages, we're showing, you know, statistical ranges. We have no idea where you are in that. You have no idea where you are in that. We don't actually put out, you know, precise algorithms saying, you know, this effect is this much on this type of person and that much on that type of person. We just say, you know, this is a general effect. This is roughly how strong it is. Um, and that's what we know, but that, that doesn't tell me about any single individual person. And e even if I say that this methodology has a 1% chance of success, that doesn't mean I say to you, don't do that because your chances of succeeding are 1%. That's, that's, that's not what it means. It means that 1% of the people we studied were successful. Um, you have to know, you know, do you match that 1%? Do you not match that 1%? Um, how might you be different from the average? And that's when knowing yourself really comes in because when you get advice, especially when you're getting advice with somebody who doesn't know you that well, you have to think, you know, how good, how good is this advice? How well does it match me? Does it actually work for me? Would it work for me? And most importantly, you don't have to take advice, you know, straight out of the box. You, you can open up the box. You can look at the parts. You can rearrange them. You can you rebuild the advice to fit who you are. The better you, the better you know yourself, the better you can do at actually rearranging the advice you get, integrating it into your personal situation and using it. What? Well, yeah, and doesn't wasn't was it Bruce Lee that has a great quote around like you kind of basically learn and then I'm going to butcher it right, but like learn and then basically take what is is good and then kind of apply that to your life. You don't have to take everything that everyone says. You know, so maybe that that's part to your point there is like you can study, you can listen, you can kind of observe, you can, you know, have people give you insight, but you ultimately have to know yourself to know maybe what you should apply. Would that be? Yeah, a and that's also, uh, it is. It is also actually a piece of wisdom from the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud actually says that, the, you know, one of the best types of those who study are those who figure out which material to discard and what's the good stuff to actually keep. Yeah, and well, it also circles back, you talk about that support system. And I think that's really, you know, important to 
you know, let people know, cause you know, some people come up against the wall and they want to quit. Right. I know, you know, I talked about this in the podcast where I wanted to start it for like mm-hmm. two years um, and you come up and you fail and stuff. But I think having that right support system of people that, you know, not just the rah, rah, but people that can also give you some tough love and, and kind of guide you through stuff that maybe sometimes is more important than having all the knowledge of, Hey, this person did it. Cause it's kind of funny. Like a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs, or, or if you talk to like, obviously people that are considered successful, right. Uh, they say they're like, if I knew what I was getting into, I probably wouldn't have done it in the first place. So almost sometimes not knowing may actually have some added benefit, I guess. I don't know. That's for sure. Uh, a lot of us don't necessarily realize what we're capable of or what we can do until we're just thrown in the deep end. And it's, you know, oh my God, I can actually swim. I, I don't even, I don't even remember learning to swim, but uh, I guess I must have learned this somewhere or I, or I actually did know how to do this. And, and wow, um, I'm not drowning. Well, one of the things I was, so yeah, great points there. If I could kind of take a, again, a sidestep again here, because I want to go into a little bit, I, I think it's on the same point around not only support systems, but having the right people around you to kind of grow, you know, whether you do have a very, very small business or maybe it's a larger organization. I know you kind of transition into working with a lot of um, organizations, right? A lot of HR groups, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about how some of this can be applied uh, in terms of whether it's hiring or getting the right people to build a better culture so that you're all in that same direction? Sure. So I think, you know, just like knowing yourself, you have to know the company that you're building. And one of the first things that I find happening with my clients is they really don't know their own company. And so some of my earliest meetings with clients are, but let's have a get to know your company uh, meeting because you know, as much as it may be your company and you started it and all those things, uh, a lot of CEOs have, even CEOs of big companies, have not really sat down and thought about, you know, what is my company about? What's it doing? Why does my company exist? Why do my employees know why they're here? Can I explain to my employees why they're here? What's the value I create? I, I actually find that a lot of CEOs struggle to answer those questions. And, and until they can answer that, it's hard to get into what kind of culture they want, but once they do answer that, then it's like, okay, well, how do you want to execute on that value proposition? How do you want your people to think about it? What kinds of values do you want them acting upon and acting out through their jobs? And that's where you start getting into, you know, what is, what kinds of people do we want? What kinds of values do we want our employees to hold or at least act upon? And then to what extent do those values need to be consistent with their personal values? They don't necessarily. Or I should say a person's top values don't necessarily have to be the company's top values. But can anybody with those values execute upon the value proposition of the company and feel good about the mission and at least be willing to do it? Or can, or can the company and the employee create alignment that way? And people, people often miss this one. You can create the alignment. And people work, in, people work in context. So, you know, it also depends on do you create an open and do you create an inclusive, and this is a big word these days, but it's actually an important one. Do you create an inclusive context where people can create an alignment between who they are, the jobs they fulfill, and the value proposition that they're executing upon? But all that requires is that you know your company, you know who you are, you know who you want to work with. And you know the context in which um, both that you work and that your employees will work. And then, only then, 
can you start actually building what's the job going to be? And even that, you know, depends a lot about, uh, upon who's, who's around you, what's the context of the job, who are the people that are going to be there, what are the tools being provided, what are the deliverables, and that actually is a conversation that should be had among a whole bunch of people, which is another one of those pitfalls that people fall into is they think, okay, we'll, we'll just get, you know, Alex to write a job description and, you know, whatever Alex comes up with is going to be fine. And, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way because whoever this is needs to talk to a whole bunch of people and anybody that this person is going to be interacting with, you know, what do you want from this new hire? Having these conversations, sort of putting in already what the support system is going to be, what will be the resources, what will be the tools, and then you bring in the person, you know, the, the interviewee, a potential candidate, and you start talking about the context with the candidate. What context do you want? Well, here's the context we're, we're offering to you. How do you want to take the context we're offering and sort of engineer it a little bit so that it's going to fit you? And can, can you find alignment in here? And how do you want to take what we're offering and turn that into the deliverables that we need to make sure that you put out? And then, you know, with that whole support system, with that whole contextual system uh, set up, that's where you've got, you know, all the people around you, you've got all the tools, you've got a value proposition that you understand and that you feel comfortable with and good about and that you want to execute upon. And you feel like the context around you can actually empower you to make that happen and that's a good job. So are, is that different for, so let's say it's a startup that has just a couple employees and they're, they're only going to make one or two hires at the beginning versus, you know, you have a large organization that's, you know, I don't know, they might hire thousands of people a year. Um, are, are those one in the same or would you kind of coach differently on, on different size organizations? I would start by saying they're one in the same, actually. Um, just how long that process may need to be or who gets involved. Uh, sometimes you can drill down a little bit, you know, in the larger organizations, it seems like there are a few more layers that you need to cut through sometimes, but still in all the process is the same. I mean, and, and it's something, you know, my clients in larger organizations, they'll sometimes say to me, do I actually have to go through that whole process? And of course, you know, I never say anybody has to do anything, but if you're asking my opinion, yes, absolutely. Especially because in the larger organizations, you're at a much bigger risk of getting lost. And of, and of sitting, I mean, I'm going to imagine a lot of your listeners who are working in big companies and, and, and many other people who do you know, work in big companies, is not go home and like, why am I doing this? And if your employees are going home asking a question like that, you're in trouble, whether you know it or not. Yeah, because I'm always fascinated by, you know, how, how hiring happens. You know, I've conducted a lot of interviews I've interviewed before. Right. So, you know, I think mm -hmm. most of us have been maybe on both sides of it. I'm always intrigued just by the process to go through. Is, is there anything from that standpoint, whether it's, again, I don't want to say it's one or two interview questions, but maybe it's how you approach the interview process to narrow it down to the right people. Just, so you don't have to have warm bodies in the seat. Is there anything that you guys coach on on that standpoint or maybe what would you suggest? Yeah, I do a lot of interview coaching, uh, both on the candidate side and on the company side. And for, for the company side, the first thing that I tell people is the interview should not, should not be answering the question, can they do the job? Because if you don't know whether they can do the job, and if you're not certain that they have the capability of doing the job, why are you wasting your time? 
Don't interview somebody that you're not certain can already do the job. By the time you get to the interview, you should be certain or as certain as you can be that they can do the job, that they're capable of doing whatever you need them to do. Now the question is, can you work with these people? Is this somebody that you can work with, you can team up with, that you can partner with, um, that you can you know, work on a deliverable with and be successful? Is this somebody that you get along with and that you feel is sufficiently aligned? And people always bring their best selves to an interview, that, that's true. And everybody goes, well, how do you cut through that? Honestly, um, if after a couple hours and a couple meetings with a whole lot of people, you're, mo most people cannot hold a facade for that long. So as you go through the interview, as you're comparing notes, one of the things you want to look for throughout is the consistency. Comparing notes, early, early day interview, late day interview, you know, did everybody get the same picture of the person? It's often hard to hold that for, for quite so long. It's one of the reasons why some companies do like full day interviews, but it, or, or multiple interviews over, you know, multiple occasions. Again, does everybody get the same picture? And if they don't, you start to ask questions, but you check references. Again, are the references consistent? Is everybody talking the same way about the person? Because if you find any inconsistency somewhere, that's when you start to raise an eyebrow. And I'm not saying it's a bad candidate, but I am saying now you need to start digging deeper. But the kinds of questions you're asking, first of all, interviews should never be a Q&A. If the interview is a Q&A and it's like some kind of interrogation, just stop where you are because you're not going to get the right hire. This really is about, like, can you sit down and have a conversation with this person? It's, it's really like get to know you. And I tell people to treat interviews like networking because the person you're talking to, they may not be the person you hire, but they may be somebody you keep in your Rolodex. And I, you know, I think about one person in particular, I interviewed with him for a position and he told me why, he told me that he was not giving me the position. He told me why, and I had so much respect for that. Um, and I really appreciated that. And he and I eventually got to know each other quite well, uh, became friends, became professional contacts, and you know, we're still in touch. Uh, you know, the, I, I interviewed for this job, must have been seven years ago, had lunch with him a couple months ago. Uh, and it's, it's, been a really, it's been a really great friendship, and uh, I've learned a lot from him. And uh, hopefully, uh, he's enjoying knowing he's quite senior to me, so uh, I, hope, I hope he's enjoyed knowing me as well. But, like, we can make these kinds of connections, and uh, companies can actually fill their role. Because they say it's so hard to meet talented people. Uh, hang on to the folks that you, you know, the folks that you interviewed. They're good enough to do the job. Hang on to those people. Get to know them. Keep track of them. As you have more openings, you might want to bring them back. Just because you didn't hire them for opening A doesn't mean that you won't need them for opening B. And you're also building your network. They may refer people in. And sometimes during that interview, they may say, you know what, I'm not the person for this job, but I think I know who is. And that can, that can also get you where you need to go, and that can get you the right people. So all this combination of integrating the different perspectives on the person, having real conversations, building genuine connections, going into the interview, wanting to build a genuine connection with the person. And also the last thing is along those lines, remembering you're being interviewed too. This is not you interview them. If you interview them while they're interviewing you because they're checking you out, they're looking for red flags. And um, I can name several companies I interviewed with that have since made those companies the butt of my jokes because they, they just, were so ridiculous during the interview and they said such crazy ridiculous 
things during the interview were ask me insane questions that they left me with a really bad impression. Not only would I never work for them, I wouldn't let my friends work for them. And in some cases, you know, I've, I've talked about these experiences and anybody who hears that is not going to work for those companies. And I promise you, you've heard of them. Well, thank you for sharing that because I think that's really helpful for, again, a lot of folks, whether it is in a small business or larger, at least to understand like, hey, there's some different layers here with, from especially interviewing and bringing on new folks. You can't just, just pull people out of a hat and then hope, you know, like, oh, well, we hope it works out in the next six months because uh, generally it doesn't. Um, what is your, I, I, well, let me take a step back with this here. For you personally, right? Um, in terms of, so let's go back. I want, I want to kind of understand you from a, from a self-actualization standpoint. You've obviously been through this path over whatever, a handful of years, right? You, from, from the aspirin days, right? And growing up, now you do a lot of lecturing. I know you do TED Talk. You're doing a lot of other stuff with the consulting. How did you kind of, I guess, transition and grow in those periods? Were there certain things, did you, did you think you would be doing what you're doing now, you know, five, 10 years ago? Or did you kind of just randomly get into this spot just by some, some sheer coincidences? I think one of the things I learned in my life is something that I, I learned from one of my intellectual idols is that nothing is random. And it, it, things just never work out randomly if you're paying attention. And I, I mean, in a certain sense, I would say I fell into all this. And then, you know, when I look back, you know, all, all the way back to the days, you know, doing uh, aspirin testing, that uh, it actually wasn't so random because I realized that one of the things that fascinated me a lot, especially as a high schooler, is how do people get into colleges? How do people pick the right college? How do people get into college? And how do colleges pick the people? Like looking at that college selection process, uh, it was really fascinating to me, and I really started spending time thinking about it, analyzing it. I mean, I, I grew up with parents that kind of trained me to think like a scientist, and, you know, I had really amazing teachers that also really inculcated scientific methods, you know, approach it, you know, carefully, rigorously, even in the humanities, my teachers in the humanities also. It was always about, you know, being, being rigorous, think about it, experiment, come up with ideas, theorize, hypothesize, gather data, and so on. And I found that I was really interested in these selection processes. I was looking at it, got involved in college admissions, uh, starting, um, starting my first year at Brandeis, uh, got involved in college admissions, uh, kept getting involved, staying involved, was part of the Alumni Admissions Council for many years, um, also became an, um, a college admissions counselor. And that's one of my side hustles, which I do because it's a lot of fun, uh, helping people get into college, helping people get into grad school, you know, working on their essays, their interviews, things like that, because it's, it's really honestly just fun. And it's, it, it's just as much fun as helping people uh, work on their resumes, their cover letters, their interviews, doing mock interviews. It, it's all a lot of fun. And I, as I kept on thinking about these processes, watching them go, watching them in action, I started also thinking about job selection. Like, how do we pick the right job? How do, we, how do companies figure out who's the right person to hire? How do we apply to a job? You know, what's a good resume? What's a bad resume? And, you know, then I started formally studying this in grad school as I, you know, did, you know, my doctorate is in positive psych and organizational behavior. Uh, the, the, and looking at that dual concentration, like see not just, you know, how people get into a workplace, but how they thrive in a workplace and that workplace thriving goes all the way back to the selection process. And, you know, studying that formally in grad school after I've been thinking about it for so many years sort of helped put the pieces together and then, 
a lot of the rest of it, what actually, you know, the, the things that maneuvered me into this position were, a lot of that was just circumstance and getting thrown in the deep end. I discovered that a, a lot of my life was getting thrown in the deep end and discovering I could swim. And, you know, that was not something I would have wanted to do. Uh, in some cases, um, I realized what was happening and I did it kicking and screaming uh, and, and like, you know, oh my God, what the hell is going on? No, don't throw me in the deep end. Um, and, you know, you know, the water closes in over your head and you're like, all right, well, <laughs> uh, thank God for the second, this isn't too cold. And, you know, that, and you start counting your blessings, at least the water isn't too cold and, uh, you know, all right, fine. I, I've had to swim before, I guess I'll have to do this again. And, um, it's, it's been a lot of scary, freaky moments that this entire path because so many accidents, so many bits of serendipity, but even, even when you see a change and you realize that the serendipity is good, it's still scary as hell. Change is scary even when it's good, even when it's fun, even when you know that this is absolutely the direction I have to be going. It's incredibly scary because it's like, I'm used to where I am. I know where everything is right now. And if I go through this change, I may not know where anything is. And the funny thing is you don't realize as you're going through it that you're actually putting things in place and you're actually laying it out for yourself. And that's what happened to me is that, you know, as I finished grad school, um, I realized that I really wanted to bridge between the ivory tower and where the rubber meets the road because I realized that that, that gap was huge and that, you know, some of the management fads that we look at today are actually things that scientists discovered decades ago. And everybody thinks it's all this brand new stuff. It's this amazing new fad. And then you look at the actual literature and it's like, this is pretty old, folks. You, you, you don't realize, you know, that a lot of the management fads were invented in, in the 80s and 90s and sometimes earlier than that. But um, so how do we translate that? And so as I started translating it, um, I realized that all the stuff I'd been thinking about selection processes were questions that my clients were asking me. And it was like they had questions, I had answers. Okay, awesome. Let me, let me keep helping you with this. And, uh, you know, that's how I ended up here. How the companies with their hiring processes, diversity, inclusion, employee engagement, well-being. Basically, how do we make sure that we pick the right people and then enable them to thrive in the organization? And it just became the culmination of all the things I've been working on for the last 12. Uh, it, I'm old enough and I've been doing this long enough to say decades. What's been the scariest part then? I think not knowing where I'm going. Because uh, I've gotten uh, I've gotten thrown in so many deep ends. They're like, um, which pool am I in? And sometimes that orienting has been the scariest part. And and having no guarantees about the future um, is pretty freaky. I remember talking with an entrepreneur that I, I really admire, um, uh, uh, Rosaline Chowku, uh, who's in Singapore starting a healthcare company. And I, I had an amazing conversation with her at one point. She had a hell of a story, uh, you know, of her own. But um, she's a few, a few years older than I am, let us say. And we were talking about, you know, how much, you know, we, we've uh, felt like we've had the floor ripped out from under us at times. And she, she kind of gave me the advice, and, and I'll pass it along, that at a certain point, you, you, you stop freaking out. You're just like, oh, God, here we go again. Um, and, and that, you know, the first time that really happens to you, you have this total existential freak out. And then there's the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, the tenth time, the eleventh time, the oh my god, this is the seventeenth time the floor's been ripped out from under me. And you, you over time you you stop you stop freaking out about that. Um, 
I will freely admit I'm not at that point yet. Um, and you know, the, there will be changes, there will be failures, there will be major setbacks. And each of those times you're like, you know, you hit this wall or you feel like you, you have no idea where you are or what you're doing and you find yourself totally in the dark about what's going on. And you're just like, wait, why am I here? Does this mean, does this mean I, I totally suck and I should just stop and just get out and go back to places that I, that I, that I know and that I feel better about? And those, those really scary moments and you don't know where you are or you don't know what the future's holding. You've got zero guarantees about anything. And in the meantime, there are some very, very hard realities in your life, like, you know, rent to pay, expenses, family, um, friends, uh, other, other obligations you may have in your life. And those are very hard and real and concrete. You absolutely know about those. And yet you don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You don't know how in hell you're going to fulfill all those obligations you've got, be they temporal obligations, social obligations, financial obligations. And for entrepreneurs, and, and yes, uh, you know, somebody like me, a scientist practitioner building your own company that is absolutely an entrepreneur, it's scary as hell. And you have to be able to stay in it, feel around for just some markers or some indicator that you know where you are. And also, you've really, you've really got to develop that fortitude. And I'd love to tell you that I've had that fortitude from day one, not a chance. Um, there have been some pretty crazy freakouts, and if not for the fact that I've got some amazing people in my life that kind of, you know, held me up when I couldn't even stand and, you know, supported me, I don't think I'd have gotten through it. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful to those people. And, you know, these are folks that you know, sort of like, you know, pull, pulled me out of the line of fire and really, you know, in that sense, pulled me out of the fire as I was basically burning myself. So having that support system is part of what helps you get through those freakouts, but that's how I got where I was, uh, where I am today, is getting through a lot, a lot of dark rooms where I had no idea where I was or where I was going or what the future was going to bring for me. Well, and knowing what you know, right, just by the, by the research and the, and the consulting you do, how do you deal with negative self-talk? Carefully. Uh, I think the first point is, you know, a lot of people just say, stop that, and I would argue that stop that is not what you do the first time. When you see yourself engaging in the negative self-talk, you really have to unpack it and not be afraid of it. And that, that I think is the most important thing is unpack it and don't be afraid of what's in there because we've all, we've all got those demons. We've all got those fears and we've got to be able to take them out and look at them. You really can't fight an enemy you can't see. It's a lot harder to do. So when those negative thoughts come up, take them out, look at them. What am I saying? Why am I saying it? Why am I saying it? Really dig into that why. Why am I saying this? What, what's really going on here? Why do I think I can't do this? And you know, it really is totally okay to fall back a little bit or to, you know, face the fact that you really don't think you can do it. And you know, we all have that imposter syndrome. We all have that like, I just don't think I can do this, and that's, that's okay. And that's the other thing to, re to recognize is that, that fear, that doubt, all those things, that's okay. It's not good. I mean, let, let's be very clear. This is not good, but it is okay. It really does happen. Let's, we, we really should be validating those fears and those concerns about ourselves. And just so, just so I'm very clear about this, validating it, saying that it's okay, all that stuff, that does not make it easier in any respect. It just makes it something you can handle. 
And it's still going to be a very, very painful moment. But, you know, it's sort of like putting on gloves so that you can handle a hazardous material saying, okay, I've got hazardous material. I've got fears. I've got doubts. I've got real concerns. And I need to handle that. So the first thing I'm going to say is these are legit. And I've got real reasons why I'm doing this. I've got real reasons why I'm doubting um, that maybe past experiences, it may be things people have said, it may be things that I'm afraid of, which probably come a lot from my past experiences. And that's okay. It, it's okay. I, like, I'm okay. Uh, like people have this, this is normal. And that's the other thing people don't think like, I'm the only one, like all the successful people, they, they never had that. Of course they did. And they got through it. And part of that is they reached out for support. They talked it out. And that's one of the other things is when you've got those things, talk it out. If you've got a good conversation partner or masterclass or therapist or coach or really, really good friends or, or, or parents or other family, talk it out. Let it out there. Put it in front of you so that you can actually deal with it. Because what happens is most people, they want to gloss over it because they think it's a bad thing or that it's not okay or that it's not normal or that it means that they're weak. And, you know, none of those things are true. But so, that, so they don't want to look at it, which is also perfectly normal because, you know, who wants to look at the dark places in ourselves? Who wants to look at the bad stuff? We all want to look at the, the good stuff. But if we can bring it out, if we can validate them, like, yep, I feel that way, and that is okay, that's not good, and that's, that, but it is okay that it's happening, and I recognize that it's happening, and now I can talk out why it's happening, and I've got people that can help me elicit all the things that are going on, and that's, you know, what, what a lot of the feedback talking with another person does, is it really helps you dig deeper, especially where you don't want to, and, you know, this is one of those things where hugs are an amazing piece of medicine. And you're just having somebody hand you a tissue and when you just break down and cry, you're just like, oh my God, I can't do this or any number of other, you know, very strong feelings that we have. Like crying is also not a bad thing and it doesn't mean we're weak and it doesn't mean we've lost control. It's crying is a way of expressing ourselves and especially, you know, men, uh, at least for the way we're being socialized, I'm really talking to the men here for a moment. It is okay to cry. Please do it. It's actually good for you. And, you know, um, you know, and some women, you know, we've also tried to tell them not to cry because, you know, it's, it's not, it's not dignified or whatever else. I don't, I don't know, but whatever it is, we've, we've all been told this and like, no, crying is okay. And having people that will give us a hug when we're crying, that will give us a tissue that will help us, you know, just vent all that out that we need. Also a very important thing. And so, you know, we take those things out and we deal with it and we go through it and we, we run through all the tears and we blow our noses and we get really really big hugs and we put our heads on people's shoulders and they help us recognize that we're okay it's not, it's not for them to tell us that we're okay because if we're not listening that won't matter but they help us to realize that we really do believe in ourselves and we really can't handle the things that are there and in some cases they help us carry the load a little bit and then you know we'll, we'll be able to stand up again and hold it on our own and that's also one of the great things of having people around but in all cases Handle it, feel it, deal with it, and recognize that it's normal. Well, we've mentioned a few times on here about support systems, kind of having the right people. Are, are there one or two mentors that you have that you kind of go to to, you know, maybe it's not the, you know, not always the hug. It's kind of the tough love as well. Um, is there anyone that you would share or maybe some things that have been impactful in, in that relationship? I've had a number of amazing mentors uh, in my life just throughout and I, you know, I'm still in touch with a lot of them. 
And actually, many of them have really beaten me with a stick, figuratively speaking. They, they were very tough on me. And uh, I still remember one of, one of them, like, he sent me an email. It was pretty much in all caps. Um, and he was like, you know, he was really, and I could just hear him. Like, I'm reading the email. I could just hear him yelling at me that I, I was, that I was, you know, not thinking carefully, that I was not, you know, paying attention, that, you know, I was going down a wrong path. And, um, you know, I, I think about how many of the times I've gotten the really tough love by people that really, that really, in a lot of ways, they knew me better than I knew myself, or I should say, they knew me very well, and they realized that I wasn't paying attention to all the information. And so they would, they would hit me with it sometimes. And then, you know, I, I, I still laugh about uh, my, my undergraduate advisor, for example, uh, gave me a lot, a lot of tough love. And he was one of the first people to really throw me in the deep end and just expect that I'll do fine. And, you know, part of that was he, he was, that was part of his style. But what was funny was I was thinking about, you know, going down one particular career path and he said, what are you wasting your time with that for? And at the time I was really mad about that because that was like, you know, my dream, that's what I was pushing for. And I, I will never forget the moment when I came back to him a couple years later, I said, you know, you were totally right. And I still got that moment, you know, freeze, you know, freeze uh, framed in my mind about telling him, you know, that he was right. And, you know, he said, like, yep, do that. And it's just years later, like, I, I think it might have even been like three years later, came back to him. Yep, you were absolutely right. Totally knew what you were talking about. Even back then, you saw it. I didn't. You right. I was wrong. And uh, just and he handled that very gracefully and in a very funny way. But still, at all, that tough love also helped me stick in there. Uh, I've got a very close friend also who is just amazing. She gives me a lot of tough love, and um, you know she tells me the things that I don't want to hear. And she's known me a very very long time, good friend from college, and. Um, she knows she's you know over the years because we've known each other so long um you know she knows when it's the right time to tell me stuff and when it's not and uh, you know I, I am i am continually grateful for having her around uh sometimes you know giving me a big hug and sometimes you know whacking me upside the head so we, we need both uh, we need the mentors to do that we need the friends to do that and then also just you know having mentors giving you the wisdom at the right time uh my graduate advisor uh definitely definitely gave me a lot of wax upside the head but they were he's a very gentle guy and he would just you know say this pointed thing at exactly the right time and know exactly what to say and what to hit me with uh, and he would just shake me up at, at at various odd times when i'm just going down the wrong path and he'd just say the right thing completely shake me up and be like whoa okay wow and that that happened a bunch of times also so Sometimes the tough love, and uh, you really taught me that, that sometimes the tough love can be extremely gentle, but still be very, very, very jarring. And is there anything with your business, um, you know, so we, again, we've talked a lot, you gave some great advice of other businesses, how they should do for your businesses. Like, do you, I'm just curious as you've grown that, uh, like, are there any cornerstone kind of principles that, that are kind of guiding for you to make sure that you can make the right decisions or you know what to say yes and no to? Is there anything that you've set up in your business that has been helpful? Yeah, I think um, the main thing for my business has been what I'm willing to say yes and no to in terms of clients. 
so for instance, um, I've gotten a lot of calls from people asking for help with diversity and what it turns out they want is, a, you know, basically for help with the quota and they're basically thinking about quotas. I'll try and turn that conversation away from quotas, but if they're not willing to turn away that conversation, I just turned down the client and I've actually sent them to competitors in some cases because it's just not something I'm willing to do. And part of that was, you know, about knowing myself, knowing my values, knowing which things matter to me, knowing what I do want to do, knowing what I don't want to do, and, and really getting those lines um, set up in accordance with my values of which clients am I willing to take, which clients am I not willing to take. And it's really odd because sometimes people ask me questions like, so, you know, which industry do you work in? I'm actually industry agnostic. I said, I work on certain problems. If, if a company has that problem, it really doesn't matter how big they are. Um, big version of the problem, small version of the problem, big company, small company, I'll work on it. And if it's not that, if it's not in that zone, and it's not something that I know that I want to work on and that I know that I work on well, I'm turning it down. And there are times when, you know, my wallet really hates me for that because I've turned down some big clients where it's just like, I'm not willing to do this. Uh, it doesn't fit me. It's not the kind of problem that I want to work on or that I do work on. And staying in that lane, knowing what my lanes are. And, and this is not about comfort zone, I should point out, because I've done a lot, I've worked on a lot of things that I've not been comfortable with, but they've still been in my lane. They've still been in my zone. They've still been in my wheelhouse. Defining that wheelhouse and saying, this is what I'm really good at. This is where I can be, this is where I can be my best, do my best, work in accordance with my values. Those are the places where you really, where I really push it forward. And it's taken me a very, very long time to come up with that uh, because it's, it's very difficult, especially when you're a one person show. And as I, I'm slowly building out, expanding the company, et cetera, but you know, as, as a one person show, especially, you really got to think a lot. You got to take a lot of long, hard looks in the mirror of like, what is it that I do? And how do I define what I do? How do I explain what I do? And also, how do I explain what I don't do? And along those lines, which clients do I take? Which ones don't I take? It, you know, and it's scary to turn down a client when you know, you're realizing, like, this could be worth quite a bit of money, but it's not in my wheelhouse. And, or it's not something that's aligned with me, so I don't think I should be doing this. And that's, that's really hard to say. So putting that, putting that through and just saying, like, I know who I am, I know what I do, I know what I do well, I know what I don't do well, I know what means a lot to me, I know what doesn't mean a lot to me, um, I know what I disagree with, and I know what I want to make different about the world, so this is how I'm going to direct my business and my consulting, my line of work. And I, I spent the time figuring that out, and that's really where I put in a lot of effort, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into that. And so now, you know, I talk about my business, and I know where I'm going. Well, you mentioned you're kind of the, you know, you're kind of doing it by yourself, right? The solopreneur, if you will. What, if anything, in mm -hmm. your business do you delegate out to, to have others help you with? So a lot of that is the admin. Um, the things that just don't necessarily require my expertise or like the things that I've spent years developing and refining. And in some cases, I've got trainees and, you know, they learn from me and, you know, interns and things along those lines. And you know, always pay your interns, folks. Um, anything, that the, anything that you're generating revenue on, they make money on. Uh, that's something I definitely have to keep telling companies. Also, you know, that's kind of lost. So 
Um, but interns, I also bring in, you know, outside assistants and I've got, I've got people in my Rolodex that I can call um, other freelancers like me where if I need stuff or if I know that, you know, my client is going to need some, um, you know, related services, I can bring in other people. And that's one of the best parts and, and most fun parts about being a solopreneur is that I know a lot of others too. And, you know, we can all sort of, you know, switch back and forth, um, send people clients. Uh, for example, if I, if I need graphic design services or if a client of mine needs graphic design or something I'm working on really needs um, good graphics and good presentation, you know, I've got a graphic designer in my role at X. I call her up. She can do anything I need her to do. Uh, she's got her own company. She takes lots of clients herself. And, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes they'll find out they're working with a client and they'll say, yeah, we need to, yeah, we're actually going to need to hire somebody that. And, you know, they'll say, yeah, I know a specialist in that. Let me, let me, hit, let me connect you to Orin. He'll help you get that hire, you know, going, going smoothly. Uh, things along those lines. So, uh, and I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to say that I need help. I'm willing to bring in software. I'm willing to bring in other people. I'm willing to, you know, get uh, other experts involved, call for advice and pay for that advice. Um, and also just pay for other services where, you know, I don't actually need to do that. If I'm, you know, developing a very, very big database of something for a client or I'm cleaning a database, um, you know, some of the early passes can be done by assistants um, where, you know, they, they can do that and then, I'll, and then I'll come back behind, make sure they did everything right and, you know, just look it over, make sure it was all done correctly and then make the extra changes myself and then start running analyses, uh, things along those lines. So what are you excited about going into the new year? Anything that's on your plate that's, or maybe, maybe it's a new project that's coming up that you're, uh, you're excited to share? Wow, there is, there is so much I'm excited about for 2020. Uh, so I've um, got some new clients in the pipeline. Uh, those are very exciting. Uh, I've been working on one book at least. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll finish it next year, but um, I am definitely excited about making progress on it. There are a number of uh, pieces I've been writing uh, and been developing for my blog uh, on Medium. And uh, I'm excited to be putting those out in 2020. So uh, stay, stay tuned to new, some new ideas about hiring in the workplace. And also a little bit about the education system. You know, I've been faculty for a number of years. And uh, people keep talking about how we want the education system to be a little different. I've been uh, thinking about things, reimagining some things. Um, probably some follow-up to some of my posts about uh, sustainable diversity and the 21st century hiring process. So those are all coming down the pike. Uh, hopefully some new classes we're going to be teaching uh, next year. And uh, hopefully, hopefully next year, another TED Talk too. Yeah, that's fun. And I'll, I'll link up the one you already did. I thought it was pretty, like I said, fascinating just in the short you know, window that you had to be able to kind of spark some, uh, some interest there. Where can everyone find you online if they want to connect with you further? So a number of different places. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Medium. Uh, on Twitter and Medium, it's just D-R Orin Davis. So D-R-O-R-I-N-D-A-V-I-S. I use the name on both uh, Twitter and Medium. And my, my main website is the Quality of Life Laboratory, which I run. So it's uh, www.qllab.org. All right. So I always like to end on this because I, when I listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm always like jotting down notes and trying to learn as much as I can. Someone listening, is there, you know, 
maybe it's a thought or a quote, you know, that you always kind of come back to, you know, maybe it is one piece of advice. I don't know, but anything that you would kind of share with the listeners as a kind of a lasting impression, something they can jot down if they were taking notes. So what I keep coming back to is knowing yourself, know who you are, know what you're about and really, really take the time to get to know yourself because I find a lot of people really don't take that time and they don't take the time to sit and think and even get the feedback of who they are, what they're about and really develop, you know, a sense of what they value, what they want to do, what they like, what they don't. And, uh, being able to talk about that, not just with yourself, but with other people, it's probably one of the most important things you can do. Well, this has been a pleasure. I'm so excited to get a chance to chat with you. I know we went on a bunch of tangents, but really good stuff. I was, uh, man, I, I, you should see my page of notes on this end here, just talking to you. So um, excited to, uh, to learn more and share this out with everyone. And, uh, and I do appreciate you uh, joining today. Thanks a lot, Brian. This has been a lot of fun. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that episode and look forward to having you in the next one. And if I could make one ask of the community, if you did enjoy this one or others, please head over to iTunes, leave me a quick review, give me a rating, let me know how I'm doing. It also gives a chance for this podcast to get bubbled up to more people, more exposure on it, and hopefully help other people on their journeys kind of get to that next level. And go check me out online. BrianAndraco.com is the website. Um, I have the podcast there, blog. I even have a now page to kind of keep people up to speed in the last couple months, what's going on in my world. Um, at worst, it allows my mom to keep tabs on me and make sure I'm doing okay. And feel free to connect with me on Instagram or Twitter, at BrianAndraco. Send me a DM. Let me know how you guys are doing, a little bit about your journey. I love to connect with new people and kind of hear what's making them passionate and motivated to reach fulfillment in their life. So I thank you guys again for listening in. I hope you have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.